Let us hear the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Tab. Thank you guys for having me. I have come to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. Um, So if you've been hoping for some answers, no. Uh, Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. So here is what hopefully will carry us through 2020 and maybe even just this morning. This idea that the supremacy of Christ is our anchor. So that truth we heard from Colossians 1 and hopefully will drive us in all of life. It's uh, reflected in the songs that we've sung together this morning that the supremacy of Christ is our anchor. Now, for me, it is always a great pleasure to visit with you guys and worship Jesus together. I'm so thankful for the different unique expressions of the local church that we have even in San Diego County. And today, I want us to to work on celebrating that our worship of Jesus actually keeps us together as a people. It's an individual church of diverse ideology and mindset on everything else outside these walls, but we are united, united together in our worship of Christ as we come together. And I think if you've lived long enough, it feels like we could really use some unifying in these days that we're living in. So in order to unify us as much as possible, Tab's asked me to come and talk about politics. (laughs) And I'm I'm very aware um, that it's not often an easy topic for us um, to talk to. But every now and again, there is something that arises in our culture that we interact with, even as believers, that we need to speak directly to and think clearly on. So I I much prefer just to open like an Old Testament text and show you Jesus from it. Uh, But today we're going to be more topical and just look at how we can engage and participate in politics, living under this banner of the supremacy of Christ. And I think we have to start then with an evaluation of who we are as the church, as believers in Jesus, and then think about how we live in light of that identity. And so I've titled this talk, obviously, Politics in Exile, because I think that Uh, title for us helps us locate then our place in the stream of culture that we actually find ourselves in in this moment. Now, exile itself is not often seen in a positive light because when people are exiled, typically it's because they have done something wrong. They've been removed from their place either because of their own actions or maybe even the bad actions of others or harm being done to them. 
So when we think of exile just in our uh, worldview, it typically says to us, well, that's, it's not good to be in exile. But for Christians, for those of us who say Jesus is our Lord, exile, while it is still very hard, it is actually a really good thing. Because we've been brought out of our prior place of existence and way of living by the saving work of Jesus. So hear this truth from Ephesians 2. And this is to you if you put faith in Christ and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that's where we were, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So every now and again we need a reset moment to be reminded who we are and what that means of where we've come from and where we exist now. We were once residents living under the reign of the dark prince, but we have been granted mercy and love raised out of that death to life in Jesus. And this profound hope then is open to all who believe and it then acts as the source of our identity. And that's what makes us then sojourners or exiles. And Paul will write to the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So no matter what land we find ourselves in, it is not our final destination. It's not the final promised place of peace and dwelling with God. And so all of our experience in this moment here is to stir our desire for that place. Because friends, we're just passing through. But even so, being exiles does not equal then passivity where God has placed us. It does not mean that we don't care for what becomes of our culture. However, it does mean that we exert our influence as very happy and broken-hearted outsiders. Which seems to be like a an unlivable tension, but we have this great joy that Jesus reigns over all, but we're still brokenhearted at what goes on in the culture in which we've been placed. Because we are exiles. The author of Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And it's a city that we hope others will join us in dwelling in. So it's right then for us to think through, once we've established that's who we are, so if you're a Christian, friends, that's great news for us. We've been brought out of something and been brought into something. We're now citizens of the kingdom of Jesus, the one who reigns, and then from that we can think, well, how then do I act? How do I live? What of Christian influence in our political climate? How are we uh, to be affected by the noise of our time? And how can we, as the church, push back against the kingdom of darkness as good citizens? 
without a doubt, and hear this, this is important, you should participate in our political culture, but you should engage in politics and public discourse Christianly so that your witness is unhindered. Now, when it comes to politics, this is kind of going to be the flow of our discussion this morning. We have to be aware first of a cultural sickness from which we in the church are not immune. Then we want to rightly anchor ourselves in the solution and then rally around some strategy for engagement as exiles. Now, I, I know and I'm very aware that there are myriad other voices with more wisdom and expertise than me, and it seems like they can't print the new books or the articles fast enough, especially in a presidential election year. So I expect that over the course of the next nine months, you are going to encounter other perspectives, and hopefully we will all get to the same place. Because what we're covering today and what I'm sharing with you is really just the result of uh, my own wrestling. And having, as Tab mentioned, a fair bit of experience in the political world, I hope that it lends some insight uh, to the things we'll discuss today. Now, even in my own story, just to give you some background, a, a loving neighbor first took me door-to-door canvassing for a congressional candidate when I was just nine years old. And from that moment, it ignited in me an obsession with politics. Eventually, I'd even get involved in uh, trying to get elected myself, and I did become the student president at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which is a great honor, and I served in that role until a really unfortunate arrest for inciting a riot. Um, So that ended my trying to get elected. But then after grad school, where I actually studied political science, I was responsible for the grassroots efforts in the 2004 Bush-Cheney presidential election um, in Ohio. And from there then, kind of the spoils of war, I served as a political appointee in the federal government at the Department of Energy, the State Department, and ended the administration at the Environmental Protection Agency. So I've got a fair bit of experience there. And just to, to give you a picture and how committed I am to this party at one time. I also have the logo of the Republican Party actually tattooed on my body that I will not show you. (laughs) And so at this moment, either you think we could be like chummy friends because of my political background, or you in this moment may want to run me off the platform because you're very nervous what this guy with the Republican tattoo is going to say. But credentials are not, I don't think we need an ounce of all that experience or some other set of experience to diagnose the problems of our political climate. We're all very aware of the divisiveness, the bitterness, the fear and tribalism that is shaping our public discourse and political engagement. And that's just the stuff you saw on social media before you came to church this morning, right? And it's idolatry, I think, that has ravaged our land and has the potential then to lead us as believers into danger. So we have to define what is this sickness? What is the thing that we're not immune from? And when it comes to misplaced priorities that can lead to toxicity in political engagement, we have to recognize that the dragon there runs really deep. For some of us, we may actually own a little bit of that. And here, we just want to be thinking within the church. Like, I don't want to even think for a moment of the outside culture that is obsessed with politics. But I want us as Christians to think of the ways in which we have become obsessed with political power. 
And while exile throughout the history of redemption has had different causes and outcomes, in Old Testament exile, it's discipline, whereas New Testament exile, it is identity. The tendency still remains for us to get things terribly wrong. Now, at Reservoir Church, we spent the last year and a half almost studying the book of Isaiah, and so we saw it quite a bit up close. But when you study the Old Testament prophets, we see what seems to be this ongoing stubbornness in the people of God who fail to trust in his provision and protection, the stuff they have experienced, like he's actually provided, he's actually brought them out of things. And you just have to read through Isaiah and you learn then this rhythm of uh, warning against disregarding God and then the people's continual turning to Assyria or Egypt in fear of what was coming from Babylon. And over and over again in the Old Testament, God promises through the prophets to care for his people. And just as often as the promise is made, the people fall for the trap of then trusting in the strategies of man, the political and military muscle of foreigners. In Isaiah 2.22, God says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This is God saying, I'm here, you're to trust me, you're to live life in response to the grace I've given you, the way in which I've provided, I've delivered you. Stop running to these foreign leaders, or even to the political mindset of your own people that rejects me. People that had actually experienced generations, like this is this is like a long, like sometimes we think like, well, God, you gotta prove yourself before I trust you. God has proven himself given his covering to a people, deliverance from slavery, a land then to call their own, yet they couldn't help but run to other masters when things got uncomfortable, and they end up endorsing evil if it meant a better circumstance for them or a hope for a better circumstance. Even uh, through Jeremiah, God says it uh, very directly, and this is not my words, these are the words of the Lord, so take it up with him. Jeremiah 2.20, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. So unwilling to submit to the Lord, the people that were meant to be his nation, find new masters at every turn and submit to the reign of those masters instead of the reign of the creator king. And in doing so, they find themselves disciplined, sent into exile, yet again to learn dependence on God. Like, that's just the way of it in the Old Testament. That's just how things happen, and it keeps going on and on so that we might see the trend and avoid it. Now, many things have changed since those times, but still today, we can have the same sickness that Israel and Judah had in the time of the prophets, this tendency to convince ourselves that the strategies of man will solve every crisis, that trusting in the political muscle of others will actually save us. To that, God says, put not your trust in princes in whom there is not salvation. And I know this firsthand because I think I was sicker than most. Like this was my way of life. I lived this tendency like it was my identity that I had to be this political animal searching and striving for power in the world. 
I would end up tying spiritual maturity to faithfulness to a political party. And red or blue, I think this can happen to you. It happens in subtle ways, right? We latch on to things that sound good and right, but then we end up missing half of what God actually calls his people to do. The things that we as believers are supposed to value and stand for. One way of diagnosing it is thinking to ourselves, well, what am I willing to overlook for political gain? That can be a huge indicator if we've fallen for the idolatry of political power. David, David Brooks, a, a secular author who's on a journey of faith, hopefully um, will be a Christian. He says in his recent book, The Second Mountain, once politics becomes your ethnic or moral identity, it becomes impossible to compromise because compromise becomes dishonor. Once politics becomes your identity, then every electoral contest is a struggle for existential survival and everything is permitted. Like that, as Christians, as believers, that should make us really nervous because that's the way of idolatry that we've seen spoken against by God Himself. And this is supposed to just be out there in the culture of those that do not trust in Jesus. But I think it's an infection even in the church. You've probably lived this, haven't you? Because have you heard or said something along the lines of, well, guys, we're not electing a pastor in chief? Or everyone's just as bad, so who cares who we vote for? And I can attest to that. Everyone is just as bad. It doesn't mean you have to endorse them. And maybe you think loyalty to your political team is all that matters. Those, those should be huge red flags for us as believers individually and within the church. And when we recognize this tendency, which is actually in all of us, regardless of our place on the political spectrum, whether you're a, uh, a Trump supporter or you're going to want people to feel the burn, this can happen to us. It gives us then a diagnosis tool to check ourselves essentially before we wreck ourselves as Christians because we could prayerfully ask God, why am I so passionate about some things versus others? Why do I so quickly move to anger when I discuss political things? Why am I so absorbed with the drama of it all? Then I think watching out for the sickness has to happen in the community of the church because idols are hard to unseat because often we don't think they're actually idols in our lives. And so I need my brothers and sisters to say to me, and we need to say to each other gently, I think your, your sickness is showing. You need to surrender that to the Lord. And so admitting the problem, anybody ever been through a, a recovery program, you know that admitting the problem is like the first step for us. So once we've admitted the problem, then we need a solution. And oh man, do we have a solution. So good. This is huge. It's earth shattering. You probably the first time that you've ever heard it. Here is the solution for the sickness of consciously and even unconsciously or subconsciously latching on to politics as our hope. This is the manna for exiles and engaging politics. Are you ready for this? The supremacy of Christ. Now, to lead ourselves out of the valley of deep darkness that is our political cultural experience. 
Friends, I think we have to be more gospel-centered than we have ever been before. We have to let the sovereignty of God in all things outweigh fear of who might get into office and instead trust in Jesus and don't run to princes. And we, we heard it already. I want to read it again. Colossians 1, this great declaration, exactly who Jesus is, who our Savior is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the supremacy of Christ is our anchor. Like this declared truth in scripture is what keeps us, what gives us sanity as we participate in the political world. And I think the supremacy of Christ actually trumps political power among exiles. You see what I did there? That was good. Preach on, preacher. Because Jesus is before all things. He determines our place, our time, and the very rulers in heaven and on earth. His decree, friends, wins the day. And his redemptive plan, the most important truth we will ever declare, is actually heading to completion regardless of who wins at the ballot box. But we have to be clear in stating that this is our anchor, the supremacy of Christ And how we might engage in light of that, we have to be clear how he actually wields his supremacy. How it's unleashed on the world because we can read and embrace the truth of Jesus powerfully reigning over all things and think somehow that we need to achieve or to help him gain some of his power now. So we have a a wrong view of power then and that gets us to endorse all kinds of silly things But when we get a true sense of how Jesus extends his supremacy and wields it in the world, we have a clearer view of how we should respond. So we have to endeavor not to get supremacy wrong. And even the people that were closest to Jesus in his ministry had a tendency to get it wrong. After the resurrection, and this story is in Luke 24, it's a great text, it's actually the Lord used it to make me one of these like Jesus in all of Scripture type preachers. But after the resurrection, it's the, the very day that um, he was um, seen by others. He is, uh, uh, just kind of appears. There's these disciples, two of them, walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And it's like a seven-mile journey, so they're taking a long walk. And they just are like glum. Like all their hope is deflated. They just can't figure what's going on. And Jesus, the resurrected Savior, appears, but they're kept from like realizing who he is. This is like Jesus on the, like being sly. Like he's like, I'm going to interact with these people they won't know. And he comes up next to these disciples and he says, what are these things you're talking about? Because you can kind of feel your tone that you're kind of down. And they say to him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to him, well, what things? 
and they responded concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. And then they go on, and this is what we need to notice. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so, even in light of the resurrection, do you notice it? They're still like despondent, like, oh, he was going to be the one who redeemed Israel. He was going to save us from our oppressors in this moment. But they have no hope, even when his tomb is empty. And Jesus says to them, if Jesus says this to you, like, like watch out. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I love that text. Like we should see Jesus in all of scripture. But in this moment, we also have to see what the hopes of the disciples on the road to Emmaus actually was. They wanted political power. They wanted Israel to be redeemed. This is the, the MEGA movement. Make Israel great again. Right. And that's what they had hoped for. But Jesus calls them fools for missing what the Messiah actually came to do. With a wrong view of power, these disciples assume and hope that the revolution was actually kicking off with Jesus preaching and doing these things, but it was actually starting through suffering and death. Paul will say in Philippians 2, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you guys, this is what Jesus does with his power. What do we do with our power? Like, I have not created a universe. Nothing is actually, you know, anybody do Enneagram? Probably not, it's, it's like witchcraft. But I'm an Enneagram 8. I want to control things. I know the best way to do things, and you better watch out if you're on the other side of that, right? But even that, even in my sick thinking, I have still never created anything like Jesus has. So I think of these little ways I have power, but he has ultimate power, all power. And where I'm unwilling to submit my, my quasi-power in things, especially in politics, he surrenders himself to the point of death. He's working peace, not by a political agenda or plan, but by the very blood of his cross. And this is what Jesus does then. He takes on weakness for our sake. He unleashes his rule and eternal reign over all things by serving, by taking on pain for the joy that was set before him. And this is the way of the kingdom. This is what we're invited into under the supremacy of Christ as those that trust in him. 
The supremacy of Christ is meant to kill the fear that tempts us to trust in political power and endorse evil as a means to an end. His sovereignty then shapes how we advocate for those things that Jesus values and that he calls us to value as well. So then with a posture that Jesus models for us and empowers us in, this is how we engage in politics. This is what we need to do it Christianly, to do it rightly, a vision of Jesus before all things, the Jesus willing to take on the cross. When we have a thoroughgoing trust in his authority, then his giving over of himself, I think we can be motivated to the action that he sets before us, the works that he has prepared for us. And so this is a little bit of strategy. You, You might think we should grasp onto, and I hope so, because in both Old and New Testament exile, God in Scripture uses His people as a redemptive influence wherever they are, wherever He has placed them. It's the truth that exiles are meant to positively impact the places that they live. Like we, at Reservoir, we have this in a poster in the back of our um, sanctuary, Jeremiah 29.7. Maybe you know it by heart, but seek the welfare of this city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, of course, we prioritize spiritual welfare as like the, the, the top thing. But in Jeremiah, the exiles are told to settle in, to, to build homes, and to marry off children. So they're called to be rooted in a place to make that place flourish because that is what they're going to do is flourish when that place flourishes. So just like them, like the exiles of the Old Testament, then this is what we are called to do. I think we step into it through healthier public discourse and engagement as individuals and as churches. So let me just give you three very practical steps that we can take to live out our political engagement as Christians for the glory of Christ. First, seek out difference. Now, the church should be the healthiest multicultural institution because what binds us together is far deeper than political ideology or even ethnicity. So we should have a head start here as the church of Jesus and make the church then, in light of that truth, a safe place to have different political views. You can model this for others by intentionally investing time and life with someone that sees things differently than you. It's far too easy for us just to end up with people that agree with us on every little thing and then we actually miss out on so much. The gospel is adorned when people that have no worldly reason to be together flourish as a family. And they will know us by our love for one another and it's a love that transcends politics. And so going with this, like, I don't, clearly it's okay to talk about politics at Grace Church. You're doing that. And so do, engage, have discussion. The gospel we preach has implications and it shapes how we actually live, even politically. So don't avoid the intersection of those two things, even if it seems controversial. But instead, be people that engage in issues with truth, with grace, with wisdom, and compassion because the gospel the fullness of christ impacts all of life and we show that to be true when we at least talk about it things don't have to be tense when you have these conversations you can you can be 
the, the Christian in the conversation and ask simple questions like, well, well, friend, help me understand your perspective. Learn as much as you can. Seek out difference and run to Christ together. And then refuse to sacrifice the gospel for political gain. And I, I think this is tremendously important for us as believers in the United States of America in 2020. And I think it's, it's, it, might, it might be more for me than it is for you, but as I go through my political engagement, I have to ask myself, are the things I'm doing or saying in the political realm jeopardizing my witness of the gospel? Are the things I'm posting on Facebook or Twitter jeopardizing my witness of the gospel? Because it's the truth that under the supremacy of Christ, I actually long for others to know him and find forgiveness, real life in him. And Am I revealing that that is my greatest hope in the way that I'm engaging or am I just blindly wearing hypocrisy for the sake of political power? John Piper speaks directly to this. He says, being Christian exiles in American culture does not end our influence. It takes the swagger out of it. We don't get cranky that our country has been taken away. We don't whine about the triumphs of evil. Evil. We are not hardened with anger. We understand this is not new. This was the way it was in the beginning in Antioch, Corinth, Athens, Rome. The empire then was not just degenerate, it was deadly. For three explosive centuries, Christians paid for their Christ-exalting joy with blood. Many still do, and more will. So seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And thirdly, just give yourself away. Foster civil society in and around the church while you preach the gospel. I think you guys do a tremendous job with your partnerships locally uh, of this very thing. And again, in Philippians 2, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of this same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So show the world where you stand by making statements with your life. Form partnerships with local organizations or maybe create your, new, your own organization to care for the least among us for the glory of Christ. Be the church that saves children from the ash heap like we were in the first century. If you live in San Diego County more than ever, there's a need for foster parents. So I encourage you to think about fostering, pray about that, adopt, befriend those that are making the hardest of life's decisions of childbearing or not. Let it be known that then it is the gospel that actually motivates your work, that we love because we've first been loved. More than ever, the church has an opportunity to bring renewal where we are, where the Lord has placed us. We can turn off the TV and instead just meet our neighbors. We can volunteer at the library. We can serve on the PTA or our neighborhood council, building relationships with people so that their welfare is tied to ours. I think when we do that, it will change our perspective and how we participate politically, and then you'll actually know how to pray for people. In 1 Timothy, a great two verses, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. 
for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the supremacy of Christ is our anchor. Friends, we can only defeat the sickness and become energized for the strategy when we are living under tethered to the supremacy of Christ. So to fix our political climate, how to engage in politics Christianly, we have to be more deeply about Jesus, trusting in him, come what may. When we vote our conscience, but we let Jesus shape our conscience before our own preference, pundits, or party, and we don't lose, no matter who wins at the polls. So the greatness of Christian exiles is not our success but our service. So come what may, we witness to the way of truth, the way of beauty and joy. We don't own culture and we do not rule over it, but we serve it with broken-hearted joy and long-suffering mercy for the good of man and the glory of Jesus. Are you willing to live like this? You can, anchored to the supremacy of Christ. Let me pray for us.